Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net, episode 99. Total War, Polemical Esotericism in the Contra Kelsum. In this episode, we want to dive into the nitty-gritty of the battle between Origen and Kelsus in the Contra Kelsum. We must recall at the outset that Kelsus is long dead by this point. So it's necessarily a one-sided battle, and we keep referring to it as a debate, but it's not a debate. It's one guy telling a dead guy why he's wrong. We also should note at the outset, we're going to be skipping really a lot of material. And organizing the material we do cover thematically to some degree, rather than just following the flow of the arguments. The arguments don't flow that well anyway. Origen tells us in his opening preface that he began the Contra Calcium according to a thematic plan, but then sort of discarded this plan for a more in-depth refutation of various points. So the book could do with some editing anyway, but our point is just to cover some important themes. We're interested chiefly in the ways in which esotericism is being deployed in the Contra Kelsum as an ideological weapon. And this is especially interesting in that, as we began to see last time, Kelsus's attacks on Christianity lean heavily on the esoteric as a strategy. The Contra Kelsum would not be nearly as interesting to us if it had been an apologetic reply to some Roman administrator arguing that the Christians are an antisocial force undermining the traditional worship of the gods or something like that. We might then see Origen using esotericism in his counterattacks. For example, he might argue that the Romans misunderstand the Christian scriptures because they're blind to the hidden inner meanings, which indicate that Christianity is in fact the culmination of Greco-Roman philosophy, and so Christianity should in fact be embraced by Greco-Roman culture, something along those lines. But in fact, we have Celsus saying, for example, that there is a secret, reified tradition of truth hiding within the teachings and institutions of all the civilized peoples of the world, or of the Greco-Roman thought world. Obviously, the world he considers the world is small, and there's no mention of the Chinese or the Mayans or anything like that in Celsus's lineage that this wisdom tradition justifies the norms of traditional Mediterranean society, roughly understood, and that the Christians have lost this tradition. They're against these norms. Celsus uses esoteric hermeneutics to demonstrate the presence of this tradition in a number of places, and Origen uses exactly the same types of hermeneutics to argue the opposite, or to nuance the argument, so that the Christians are in fact part of the great tradition. It's fascinating. Both thinkers want to claim, for example, the heritage of the true mysteries. Both use enigmata to interpret the mysteries, to find their inner teachings. You'd think this would give them some common ground, but the opposite is true. A secondary interest in this discussion is to observe the lessons that the Contra Kelsum conveys about the rise of totalizing discourses of truth, and the ways in which the esoteric can be used to posit and maintain positions of absolute traditional hegemony. We're heading into late antiquity in a big way here, and the Contra Kelsum is the perfect exemplar of the new ways of thinking arising in this period. But already we see some, as it were, late antique, totalizing talk from Kelsus himself writing in the second century. To quote Pierre Radeau, in the second and third centuries, the Palaios Logos, the ancient tradition, became the Alethes Logos, the discourse of truth, to take Kelsus's title a kind of perennial philosophy which was revealed to the earliest humans and which the Greek philosophers have preserved, end of quote. So what we see in Celsus, I will argue, is a weaponization of esoteric lineage building and hermeneutics 
for the purposes of ideological and identitarian polemic in this developing intellectual battlefield in which totalizing discourses are more and more appropriate. And of course, Origen will answer in kind. Let's get into it. First of all, we'll have to look at Celsus's attacks from doctrinal points of view. So the most important of these is that the Christians are not really monotheists, and the true account, of course, teaches that the only source of all reality is an absolute unity. So Celsus is a super monotheist, even though he worships lots of gods. But there are other interesting points which we might classify as doctrinal. And the only one we're going to have time to go into in this episode is that the world is eternal, as against the Christian and Jewish claim that it was created relatively recently. And we also have here an interesting glimpse into Celsus's view of catastrophism. Then we're going to turn to Celsus's more culturally situated attacks. The Christians are a new movement lacking a historical pedigree. In fact, they are apostate Jews, and the Jews were already bad enough. They, like the Jews, practice sorcery, which is always a good accusation when attempting to defame a religious tradition in the Roman Empire. The Christians reject sound method, relying on a bunch of newly minted scriptures instead of the dialectical process of reasoning, which of course leads one to accept the true account. But best of all, and this is the charge and countercharge we want to spend the most time with in this episode, the Christians are bad esotericists. We'll explain what we mean by this, but basically, it's an accusation which is kind of structurally similar to the magic accusation. In terms of magic, Celsus says, Christians, sorcerers, and Origen responds, no, Christians, doers of divine miracles. So, with the bad esotericism accusation, Celsus says antisocial secret group hiding their true doctrines because they're up to something. Origen responds, no, exemplars of the very type of approved hiding and revealing typical of proper esotericism. So let's begin with the charge that the Christians aren't really monotheists, even though they claim to be. Now, the way I phrase this is a bit misleading. Celsus's claim is that the Christians, in claiming that their god is both, well, god, and also a recently crucified Jew, they cannot possibly be serious when they claim that their god is truly one. Celsus, as a Platonist, and as we saw, one of a remarkably Neoplatonist worldview, Neoplatonist in quotes, he claims that the primary god is a transcendent unity free of all qualities. Predicates, for example, like the predicate was born and died on the cross are clearly totally out of bounds for him, you, and he ridicules the Christian position here. But it's misleading to call this a criticism of Christian monotheism, because when we say monotheism, we typically mean not simply the belief in a single god, because in that case, pretty much every intellectual in late antiquity is a monotheist, but we also mean a host of attendant beliefs, such as the belief in exclusivity. So for example, Celsus maintains that it's irrelevant what name you call the one true primary god. Call him Zeus, or you can use the names prevalent among the Indians or Egyptians. It makes no difference. So he's being rather unmonotheistic in his approach here, even though he's arguing that there is a single highest god from whom all the other gods are generated. So in, in doctrine, he's being monotheistic. In style, he's being more typical of what we think of as pagan or traditional. Now, there's a lot to be unpicked here culturally. First of all, 
Celsus and Origen both want to argue that there's a single supreme god from whom all other realities arise, including spiritual beings. Celsus calls these gods and daimones, Origen calls them angels and demons, and regarding demons, Origen considers them evil, and Celsus, we can probably guess, considered them a mix of harmful and helpful, in line with the normal Middle Platonist position. You remember from the podcast that Plutarch posited pretty malevolent demonic beings. So, so far so similar. However, Origen insists that there is something special not only about the Supreme God, but about the Jewish account of the Supreme God. That is, Moses received a special revelation which included names for God, like Sabaoth and Adonai, and that these names have a very special status. It's not just okay to call the highest God Zeus. In fact, to do so is blasphemous. This is the full monotheist intolerance package. This passage and related ones in the Contra Celsum raise a plethora of interesting questions, but they fall slightly outside the current discussion's main goals. However, Origen's response to Celsus in Contra Celsum 1 will be returning to the podcast in a perhaps surprising context when we discuss Iamblichus's theory of non-signifying names in the theurgic context in his reply to Porphyry. Meanwhile, a lot of debate recently has gone into defining what we really mean by monotheism, if it's more than just the belief in a single god, see the various works touching on pagan monotheism in the recommended reading section to this episode for lots of interesting discussions around the topic. For now, we can say Celsus made a point which was to dog Christian theology for centuries. How can you claim that your god is both one and many? Platonism took its ones very seriously, and even thought through the reality of oneness to the point where they denied any attributes at all to a true one, placing it beyond even the monad, for example, an instance of oneness or oneness in itself. So, of course, the Christians will, will draw on these very arguments in trying to nuance what they mean by the Trinity, but the Platonists never buy their nuancing. Origins, God, Christ, dyad, will not do for Celsus. And obviously, later Trinitarian dogma would have garnered even more metaphysical scorn from Celsus had he lived to see it. Turning to the eternity of the world, this is a very interesting case in point. Um, this was an argument which would also have a long life in Platonist versus Christian polemic. The Platonists, as we've noted before in the podcast, pretty much always read Plato's Timaeus account as not really teaching that the world had a beginning through a creation process, but was rather temporally eternal. Plutarch is the exception here, whom we've talked about on the Schwepp. Aristotle offered a lot of arguments for the eternity of the world, which were absorbed into the arsenal of the Platonists. Now, Celsus attacks the chronology of Moses specifically, which claims that the universe is less than 10,000 years old. Origen here doesn't have much of a reply on the level of philosophy, except to point out how good Moses is on every subject. One suspects, in fact, that he, Origen, may himself have harbored a rather atemporal reading of the creation account of Genesis, see his On First Principles for some serious metaphysics of time, but he's cagey about coming out and saying that he actually agrees that the world is eternal or eternal in a certain sense. Note that I'm inferring here. He may not have had this belief. I just suspect that he did because he's being cagey, so you can't tell. However, we can note in passing that Celsus had an in 
interesting belief which I think doesn't survive explicitly in any other ancient Platonist, but which we would kind of expect to. Remember the account of the Egyptian priest from Plato's Timaeus, who told Solon that the earth had been hit by a number of cataclysms, each of which wiped out most of humanity, except the Egyptians who have this special geography in Egypt, so they're kept safe for some reason. This is why the Greeks were always children. They only have a short cultural memory going back to the most recent cataclysm, while the Egyptians remember a much deeper um, historical framework. This is all at Timaeus 22c to 23b. Well, Celsus has a whole historical framework incorporating the cataclysms, seemingly, from what we can glean from the Contra Celsum. The most recent cataclysms were, quote, the flood in the time of Deucalion and the conflagration in the time of Phaethon, end of quote. So not only does Celsus think the world is periodically destroyed from eternity by floods and conflagrations, but he thinks that the Greek myths of Deucalion and Pyrrha, the Greek flood myth, and Phaethon, Phaethon's the guy who got his father, the sun god, to lend him the sun chariot for a day and ended up losing control and scorching the world. These are accounts of the most recent iterations of this cyclical catastrophism. So note that um, Celsus is, is perfectly capable of reading what might seem to be a rather absurd myth as having a literal surface meaning which is historically true, right? It's not just the Christians who do this, it's also the Platonists. <laughs> We would love to know if more ancient Platonists held this or similar views. One suspects it must have been at least a reasonably common hypothesis, based on the authority of Plato's Timaeus, and on the fact that it allows for us to explain how, in an eternal world, Greek history seems not to go back very far. In fact, it could have been a perfect way to explain the Greek Dark Ages very neatly. So, lovely stuff. Now, we turn to some of Celsus's more culturally specific attacks, and to Origen's counterattacks. Here it should be said, Origen often comes across as somewhat more sympathetic, to me at any rate, than Celsus. For one thing, Celsus has a very class-based edge to many of his attacks. As we mentioned last time, he has a strong anti-Jewish thing going on generally, but his attacks on Jews are often laden with class hatred. The Jews who followed Moses were stupid goat herds and shepherds, the Jews of his day are sorcerers and beggars, and we'll get to the sorcery accusation in a little bit. Jesus' class background also comes in for attack. Not only was he a Jew, bad enough, he was the son of an adulterous woman who did menial work, and his mother's husband was a carpenter, but he was actually the bastard son of a Roman soldier called Panthera. So he's a lower class bastard, and Christianity itself is, quote, vulgar. It is successful only among the uneducated because of its vulgarity and utter illiteracy, end of quote. So we have a whole raft of accusations that the Christians are a kind of uneducated rabble, descended from uneducated rabble. Celsus also doubles down on his position, as we mentioned last time. The Jews may be bad, but at least they are true to their ancestral customs. Christianity is a Johnny-come-lately with no historical gravitas at all. Now, Origen's replies to all this take many forms. As to the class attacks, Origen both denies, quite rightly, that there are no educated Christians. Indeed, in one telling citation, he mentions that even Celsus admits that there are some Christians who are skilled in allegorical interpretation. 
So not only educated, but equipped with the proper esoteric hermeneutics for interpreting sacred sources properly. But Origen also stands up for the poor, uneducated masses. For him, as a true Christian universalist, the simple uneducated folk are to be given their due and are eligible for salvation, even if they don't understand the esoteric meanings of the Christian texts. So in essence here, he's calling Celsus's bluff. Yes, we do include masses of simple people among us. And so what? What's so great about being posh? So here we see one aspect of Christianity which is easy to forget about in all the theological controversies of late antiquity, that it was genuinely a radical social movement, inclusive of the lower classes and even, shock horror, of women. As for the claim that Christians are apostate Jews, Origen simply denies this. The Christians are the fulfillers of the Jewish prophecies, as shown everywhere in the Gospels and so forth. So Jesus is fulfilling all these prophecies that you find in the uh, Jewish books, case closed. And proving this was certainly on the agenda of the people who wrote the Gospels themselves. They're always trying to say, look, and then this fulfilled this prophecy, and then this fulfilled this prophecy. So see, Jesus is the guy. It's true that the Christians do not follow all the Jewish commandments, Origen admits. They don't circumcise, for example. But this is because Christ made this commandment null and void. Now, Origen never cites any scripture here, so I actually wonder where the Christians got the idea that they didn't have to circumcise themselves. But they did at some point, and so it was ever since. Now, Celsus also accuses the Christians of being sorcerers, goetes. And this accusation is interesting from the perspective of Western esotericism. This argument has huge amounts of very important um, data for us when trying to look at magic, in quotes, in the second and third centuries, both in Christianity and outside of Christianity. As we discussed in episode five, the difference in the Greco-Roman thought world between legitimate religious practice and illegal magic was pretty much always in the eye of the beholder. But we also recall from our interview with Naomi Janowitz in episode 55 and elsewhere in the podcast that the Jews had, as part of their complex reputation among the non-Jewish Greco-Romans, the reputation for being particularly devoted to illicit magical practices, which of course made them both suspect and highly regarded if you needed something done magically. You went to the Jew. So Celsus says of the Jews that they, quote, worship angels and are addicted to sorcery, of which Moses was their teacher, end of quote. Now, we have a lot of other Greco-Roman sources stating that Moses was a sorcerer, and there's plenty of material in the Bible which might lead one to agree. He turns the staffs into snakes, for example, in his magical duel with the Egyptian priests in Exodus 6.28 to 7.13. It's actually Aaron, his brother, who stands up to the Egyptians, but Moses is there behind the scenes, somehow channeling God's power and making these snakes appear. Jesus himself, get this, when he was wandering around as an outcast, since he was the bastard son of incest, so he, at some point he just kind of had to slope off and, um, you know, he was sort of hounded out of town, I guess. He went to Egypt, it turns out, and there he learned magical arts. And then once he became a powerful sorcerer, this actually kind of turned his head and made him think he was bigger than he was, and he convinced himself and everyone else that he was God. So here's the Jesus was a magician accusation in quite an early form. Now, this is serious blasphemy from Origen's perspective. 
And he counters it in many ways, one of which is by pointing out that Jesus's miraculous acts only helped people. So he wandered around doing good. He doesn't make this comparison, but he's a bit like an Apollonius of Tiana. Wherever he goes, miraculous stuff happens and everyone is left better than they were. He also just states that Jesus's acts are miracles, in essence, reversing the magic accusation. This is not magia. It is true religio, to put it in Roman terms. This is the general outline of Origen's approach here. There's actually a whole lot more to interest students of ancient magic to be found in these debates, and the notes to this episode list some relevant passages, but we're not going to get into it all now, so do check those out. But let's back up a minute. What about this angel worship accusation? This would seem to be aimed at the Jews rather than the Christians in the context in Contra Celsum, but it's interesting. And what about the accusation Celsus makes that he has seen certain books among Christian elders, which contained, wait for it, Onomata Barbara, barbarian names. That's Wokes Magikai to you and me. Names for addressative magic. Names of daimones and magical formulae. We should keep in mind here, when trying to interpret this accusation of Celsus, that daimon and angelos could easily be seen as the same thing to a Platonist. They are in Philo, explicitly the same thing for example, and that the daimonic names Celsus is referring to might well be names like Michael and Oriel and all the classic angel names which we know were a mainstay of antique addressative practices, as well as of Jewish rituals like the Hechelot ascent practices we discussed in episode 53. But at any rate, Celsus has seen some books among Christians and they're full of what are probably invocations of angels. And Celsus makes this very concrete when he says that the Christians get the power they seem to possess by pronouncing the names of certain daimones and incantations. In other words, Celsus is not only claiming that the Christians are doing illegal magical practices, he's also claiming that these practices work, that the Christians in his day really are working wonders. Now, Origen agrees. <laughs> um, Origen also thinks that the, the great early Christians of the second century were going around doing miraculous things all the time. In fact, both authors agree on this point. The Christians of the second century are healing the sick and driving out possessing spirits and all kinds of wonderful stuff. And Origen even agrees that they do it through pronouncing special words of power. Now, this is where they differ. He says they are using the name of Jesus. This name is like the master magic word for Origen, which renders all the other magic words null and void. Interestingly, in book one, Origen gives a history of magic's functionality. In the bad old days before Jesus came, incantations used to work. But when Jesus was born, the old school Goetes discovered that their magic powers had fizzled out, and they were wondering what was going on. But then they noticed a new star in the sky, which went against all known astrological constants, and they realized that a new era had dawned in which the old magic didn't work anymore. Quote, Magicians are in communion with demons, daimones, and by their formulas invoke them for their own ends, which they desire, and they succeed in these practices so long as nothing more divine and potent than the daimones and the spell that invokes them appears or is pronounced, end of quote. So that's Origen speaking in his own voice, saying, magic is real, it works, but when the real stuff comes, that's Jesus' power, it kind of overrides any demonic magic. So there's a lot of complex polemic here. <laughs> Origen is 
completely sidestepping the issue of the books full of angel and daimon names, which Kelsus has seen in the hands of Christians, we have every reason to take this as evidence of addressative practices in the early Christian or Jewish Christian milieu. But of course, the Christians in question will probably have seen these works as perfectly legitimate books of Christian religion, right? They may have even been prayer manuals. This tradition, that of addressative ritual practices invoking angels for many different purposes within Christianity, of course extends and ramifies right through the Middle Ages and beyond, as much recent important work on the Ars Notoria and related currents has made blindingly clear. And we'll be getting to all that in the podcast, of course. Uh, Christian magic is has always been alive and well, and it continues to be alive and well today in many ways. Uh, we also, ha- of course, have strong early Christian and Jewish astrological traditions, which we shall be discussing in the podcast, and which also go on right into the modern period. So Origen is sort of avoiding the issue of the magic books, and he's also rewriting history such that the only magic that truly works nowadays is that done through Jesus's name. But this is, of course, not magic its miracles. However, Origen also admits that sorcerers do have power, as we saw in that quote we just cited a minute ago, although through their converse with demons, so he's not actually being very consistent here, or not obviously so. Celsus, meanwhile, is coming from a Greco-Roman perspective whereby non-state-sanctioned divinatory and addressative practices are just illegal and bad, and they can be dismissed as goitea or magia in Greek. And anyone doing them is de facto evil or pernicious, or from a Platonist perspective, is just concerned with very low matters and not um, with the higher noetic realities where magic doesn't work because they're above the stars. And he has a point. If reading the texts full of wokes magikai makes you a mage or a sorcerer, then there were certainly many mages or sorcerers among the early Christian movements. They might have been praying for angels to help them or something like that, but that looks an awful lot like magic. In Origen's day, I think it's safe to say, the intra-confessional polemics against things like addressive angel rituals and astrology were really picking up more than they were in Celsus's day. So to take an example, we recall Clement of Alexandria in Book 5 of the Stromates gave an esoteric reading of the famous Ephesia Grammata, and he treats it as a benign source of esoteric cosmological teaching. I think that in the 3rd century, when Origen is writing, it was getting much more difficult for Christians to do stuff like this, to take a bunch of Greek magic words used in incantations and say, ah, look, they have a secret cosmological teaching, which is fully in accord with Christianity. At this point, you just say, no, this stuff is evil, and you leave it alone. So Origen's position shows, I think, a hardening of the battle lines. And he has difficulties coping with the evidence Celsus brings that the elders in his day, whoever they were, were, well messing around with books of spells. Now, there's a lot more we could say about the world of magic in early Christianity, but we're going to have to turn to the world of philosophy. And we should mention Celsus's major critique of Christians, that they ignore the dialectical process in their alleged search for truth. We should, quote, follow reason and a rational guide in accepting doctrines. Anyone who believes people without doing so is certain to be deceived, end of quote. So this citation is a good summary of an accusation that comes up quite often in the Contra Celsum in various forms, that firstly the Jews who followed Moses and latterly the Christians who followed Jesus, they're basically being suckered 
these guys have magic powers. They do some magical stuff and everyone says, oh, they're God or they're, they're, you know, servants of God. But that's just because these people are ill-educated and don't have critical faculties. If they would only exercise their critical faculties and if they had reliable guides, i.e. good philosophic teachers or perhaps the works of Plato, they would see through this charlatanry and no one would follow these uh, wonder workers. Origen's responses to this accusation make a reasonable point that those who follow philosophic hieresis, schools of thought, do so based simply on chance or disposition. So they're in no better position than the Christians, a priori. And in fact, they're worse off because the Christians have the divinely inspired scriptures. But although there's validity in this point, it's a bit weak. Celsus, if he were alive to answer this, might respond that actually people follow a given school of thought, or not at all, because they're using their logos, their critical rational faculties, to sort of figure out which arguments make sense, and not just because of some luck of the draw outcome. But there's a larger debate lurking here, one which brings in the whole failure of nerve narrative. This narrative, to which we alluded in episode 95, Introducing Late Antiquity, is the idea in historiography that people in, in Late Antiquity, generally speaking, sort of gradually stopped trusting in their common sense and their scientific inquiry, which had been typical of earlier Greek thought in the Golden Age, and went over increasingly to faith-based models of knowledge. The failure of nerve model is old-fashioned, it's oversimplified, and it doesn't really work. And yet, it is kind of a useful way of thinking through the difference between the way Celsus thinks and the way Origen thinks. Celsus is arguing that blind faith leads to being duped. Origen counters that trusting in human rationality leads to being duped. You need a divinely sanctioned standard of truth. Interestingly, both approaches draw heavily on Plato, who argues in many places that the highest philosophic wisdom comes from the gods, not from human beings, but who also privileges the dialectical process in a big way. And in fact, both Celsus and Origen consider both processes, dialectics and divine revelation, as essential components of the search for truth. The difference, roughly speaking, between their positions is that Celsus wants to locate the search for truth primarily in its traditional institutional boundaries, the philosophic schoolroom or the educated disputation among educated Greco-Romans. Well, Origen wants to put it in the Christian scriptures, hidden esoterically, which give us a hotline to God, but, and this is crucial, which do need to be explicated according to what is, in essence, Platonist esoteric reading in order to be understood more deeply. In the end, part of the dissonance between the two thinkers is that Celsus believes in truth with a capital T, but Origen believes in truth and in salvation, which is, in a sense, more important than philosophic knowledge of the truth. And it's essentially something like mystery initiation. You either have it or you don't. So this is a big divide in ways of thinking, and Origen's way, for better or worse, was the future. The idea of Christian salvation just wouldn't have made sense to Celsus or really anyone from the second century. Um, why do we need to be saved, and what are we being saved from, and what's so bad about this world, and all that kind of stuff? Um, I don't want to get too black and white in this discussion, but I hope listeners get the idea without being suckered by the idea that uh, everything in late antiquity was a kind of slide into irrationalism. Now, we have 
surveyed a few important points in the origin Kelsis debate so far, and we're already at the end of our allotted time for an episode. However, we had to cover what we've covered because all of these points will return in the podcast, and they're all important for the kinds of debates which will occur going forward in Western esotericism. However, we have missed out a whole heap of stuff, and it's all kind of important for the history of Western esotericism because the Contra Kelsum is just a crucial document. Uh, we have a brilliant English translation by Chadwick, which has stood the test of time for more than half a century, so there's no excuse not to go check out the Contra Kelsum for yourself if you are an English speaker. And if you're not an English speaker, you're not even understanding what I'm saying anyway. It's a great read for those who love this sort of thing. But now we turn to the part of the debate which we find truly fascinating from the perspective of Western esotericism in late antiquity. This is the accusation by Celsus that the Christians are bad esotericists, and Origen's response that no, the Christians are the best esotericists. But of course, neither man uses the term esotericist, so we need to explain what we're doing here. Basically, both Origen and Celsus take a wide range of sources and interpret them through enigma, allegoresis, and similar methods to extract the hidden truths which support their positions. For Celsus, this is approved philosophic practice, and we've seen it being done by Plutarch, Numenius, Apuleius, and many others in the podcast so far. The Middle Platonists appropriated the mysteries, they appropriated myths, they took the Homeric poems, and so forth as esoterically crafted texts with hidden meanings, most usually ones to do with cosmology and metaphysics. So far, so good. Now, Celsus makes two accusations against the Christians which are relevant to this practice of esoteric reading. One, that they use esoteric reading improperly, they misunderstand the enigmas, to tease the meanings that they want out of texts. So they are bullshit esoteric readers, in essence. And two, that they are secretive rather than esoteric. So what Celsus is getting at here is something along the lines of a sinister cult, to put it in modern religious polemical terms. They're a secret sinister cult. So Origen's responses to these accusations are very complex and very interesting. And we're just going to have time to discuss a few here, just pluck a few gems from the Contra Celsum to give an example of the way this polemical use of esotericism works in the text. As we saw in the last episode, Celsus explicitly praises Plato as the proper esoteric writer. Plato writes in a way that hides his true doctrines from the hoi polloi, but also makes his philosophic reader do the work of figuring them out for himself or herself, and thus kind of fosters philosophy. Standard esoteric Middle Platonist stuff, I would say. But he accuses the Christians of having secret doctrines which they don't reveal, but in a bad way. They keep them hidden because they're afraid, presumably, of the just punishment they would receive at the hands of the authorities if people knew about them. Who knows what goes on behind the closed doors of those Christian churches? That's, in essence, the implication. It's bound to be something unsavory and antisocial. Incidentally, Celsus is right that the Christian movement is against the social order that he supports, i.e. an elitist intellectual aristocracy. Origen and his rabble do indeed want the working classes to inherit the empire. But back to esotericism. Origen's response is very instructive here. Quote, It is quite absurd to say that the Christian doctrine is secret. The existence of certain doctrines which are beyond those which are exoteric 
and do not reach the multitude is not a peculiarity of Christian doctrine only, but is shared by the philosophers. For they had some doctrines which were exoteric and some esoteric. Some hearers of Pythagoras only learnt of the master's ipse dixit, but others were taught in secret doctrines which could not deservedly reach ears that were uninitiated and not yet purified. None of the mysteries in any place in Greece and in barbarian lands has been attacked for being secret. Therefore, Celsus has no reason to attack the secrecy of Christianity and has no accurate understanding of it. End of quote. So Celsus is constructing a binary, secretive versus esoteric, the first being antisocial, dangerous, and bad, the second being proper. Origen's reply, in essence, is that we also are esoteric, and moreover, so are the Pythagoreans and the mysteries that you're so proud of. In other words, the cultural sources of authority that you have adduced for your lineage, they're also secret in the same way that we're secret. So what are you saying? Are you saying that the Pythagoreans are evil? Surely not. So therefore, you're cool with the Christians, right? Um, we'll come back to that kind of origins response because there's more to it. But let's give another example here. Um, in book one, section 18, Origen notes all the usual criticisms of the traditional Greek gods of mythology. They commit incest, they're subject to human passions, and so forth. And then he rallies to the defense of Moses against Celsus. Now he's speaking directly to Celsus here in a rhetorical way, even though Celsus is dead. Notice also that the men in your list of writers pay little attention to those who would read them without any deeper understanding. They wrote down their own philosophy, as you call it, only for people able to interpret figuratively and allegorically. But in his five books, Moses acted like a distinguished orator who pays attention to outward form and everywhere keeps carefully the concealed meaning of his words. End of quote. So this is actually a really good point that Origen raises here, although Celsus would doubtless not agree with it. He's saying, you know, you have all these absurdities on the surface level of your texts, your Homer, your Greek mythology, so on and so forth, but you have to dig underneath to find the esoteric philosophic meanings. In Moses, in the books of Moses, because of course Moses is the author of the first five books of the Bible, as far as both Origen and Celsus are concerned, in Moses, we have a beautiful um, surface meaning, which doesn't have any absurdities. Again, here, Celsus might disagree, but Origen is happy to say this. And we have the subtext, the secret teaching. So this is writing for both levels of reader at the same time. This is proper esotericism. By hiding the truth in plain sight through esoteric writing and also having a surface meaning which is unobjectionable, Moses is the daddy of them all. Homer, on the other hand, may indeed have a deep esoteric meaning, but on the surface he has the gods doing all kinds of stupid stuff. That's why the Mosaic writings have inspired even non-Jews, Origen tells us. These writings are universal. They speak to all levels of human uh, consciousness. Now, Celsus makes another claim against the Christians, that they read enigmas badly, i.e. they use esoteric reading to explain away different points in their scriptures and kind of try to come up with a single coherent religious message. But in fact, the scriptures are a big mess. Now, as an aside here, this is where we get into completely unfalsifiable territory. The, the bad esoteric reading accusation could easily be cast at both of these authors. 
it should be perfectly clear to any outside observer that both Middle Platonist esoteric readers and Christian scriptural readers are habitually and programmatically ignoring the stuff that seems to contradict their message in order to get the message that they want. That's how this kind of reading works. In fact, one approach to the rise of what we call esoteric hermeneutics in Platonism and earlier in Stoicism sees it as primarily a means of making recognized authorities like Homer philosophically unobjectionable. We don't want Zeus raping mortals, so we make it into an allegory of the physical elements, this sort of thing. Um, I think there's more going on in this intellectual history than just this, but there's no denying that this is going on, that one motive for this kind of reading among the Greeks arose from wanting to have these kind of authoritative names like Homer um, as part of their intellectual lineage, but having the problem of what do you do about, you know, the Homeric gods, this sort of thing. Now let's have a look at this process in action in the Contra Calcum, weaponized esotericism at its finest. We only have time for one section from Celsus and one from Origen as being sort of most representative of their positions. So at book 6, 42-43, Celsus discusses the to him blasphemous Christian idea of Satan, the Christian position that God has a kind of enemy. The Christians, we learn, made this up because they misunderstood the divine enigmata hidden in Greek myths. So the teachings of the ancients about a divine war between the Titans and the Olympians and the Greek myth of the Gigantomachy, the war against the giants. So Celsus reads these esoterically, citing Heraclitus and Pherecides of Syros along the way, and he also traces this wisdom, this hidden wisdom, back to, to the Greek mysteries and the Egyptian mysteries, which tell of Typhon, Horus, and Osiris, and then goes on to cite Homer's Iliad, Book 1, 590-91, gives an enigmatic interpretation of the peplos, the gown of Athena, which is carried around in the festival of the Panathenaea, and a bunch of other sources. So the overarching esoteric truth hidden in all of these sources is not that there is an evil counter-god, like the Christians think, but that the supreme god imposes order on the primordial chaos, which is matter. So, in other words, Platonist cosmology. The Christians just aren't intelligent or skilled enough to read esoteric texts properly, so their idea of Satan comes from this clumsy misreading of these sources that Celsus has just given. Note the implied accusation that whatever teachings the Christians stroke Jews do have, they must have lifted from the esoteric tradition of wise nations like the Greeks and the Egyptians. So they're looters of the true wisdom, just like Clement said about the Greeks, uh, looting the Jews for their philosophy in the Stromates. Origen's reply here is interesting, but we will skip it for reasons of time and go on to his more programmatic statements on Christian esotericism in Book 1 of the Contra Celsum. If Celsus had read the prophets, Origen asserts, which are full, he admits, of obscurities and sayings, quote, whose meaning is not clear to the multitude, end of quote. If he had read these writings, Celsus would understand that the Jewish scriptures are a full esoteric menu of revealed truth hidden in plain sight. Later, at 129, he adduces Jesus' sayings as recorded in the Gospels. They have, quote, the veil of apparently quite simple expressions, which conceals within itself, as one might say, 
a more mysterious interpretation, end of quote. Here, incidentally, Origen is doing something which Clement also did, making a virtue of the simple Greek of the Gospels, which cultured Greco-Romans found offensively uh, poor. The seemingly lowest common denominator nature of this text, the fact that it seems to have been written by an uneducated teenager, is in fact a veil hiding the deepest esoteric truths. So Celsus, in his inability to grasp this esoteric character of both testaments, is like someone who lived, say, for example, among the Persians or Egyptians, and heard their myths, but only understood the exoteric level of meaning. Origen is saying, I'll see your they-are-crap esoteric readers, and I'll raise you. You are the crap esoteric readers, and we get it. Now, obviously, this kind of argumentation can never lead to anything but further esoteric interpretation. Um, They're not arguing about falsifiable readings. They're arguing about interpretive choices which have no a priori uh, constraints put on them. When you're looking for this kind of esoteric wisdom, you can find it anywhere that is seen as a, a decent place to find such things in your tradition. As we recall, Clement was perfectly happy as a Christian to find esoteric Christian truths hidden within Greek magical texts, while Origen is perfectly happy going to Homer to validate his points. And Celsus is more than happy to go to the Egyptians and Persians and many other barbarian peoples as well as the Greeks. They differ in whom they privilege, they differ in who stole what from whom, and they differ finally in the kind of salvationist uh, worldview or otherwise that they hold. But these thinkers are in many ways doing exactly the same thing. And I hope that this discussion um, has indicated some of the debates that were around as we move into late antiquity, some of the ways in which absolutism was developing, and most importantly, some of the ways in which the esoteric could be used as a rhetorical and polemical tool for uh, maintaining one's increasingly absolutist stance as to the truth about the universe and humans' place in the universe. As for the amazing arguments back and forth about whose esoteric readings the better one and which sources are the valid ones, I think it's safe to say that both Celsus and Origen never will come to any kind of uh, final conclusion, but will rather stay esoteric. <laughs>